0: And today our scripture reading is from Habakkuk, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. This is on page 785 in the Pew Bible. The oracle from Habakkuk, the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, that you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and injustice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am rising up the Chaldeans, that that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men, whose own might is their god. This is the word of the Lord.
1: God, why aren't you doing anything? This is the question that sits at the back of so many of our minds when we listen to the news or you see the latest uh, alert on your phone about something happening in the world. God, why aren't you doing anything about this? Around the world, we hear about Ebola, about human trafficking, about ISIS, about global debt and growing deficits. And here at home, in our city, we experience firsthand the realities of struggling school systems, of racial division and conflict, of abortion and child abuse, of high homicide rates. We have 69 murders so far in the metro area this year. God, why aren't you doing anything about this? This is the question that we ask but, but underneath that question, driving that question, is really a deeper question, uh, one that probably not many of us have verbalized. Maybe we didn't even have words to put around it. But I, but I think the question under the question of, of, God, why aren't you doing anything about this, is, God, aren't you better than this? God, aren't, aren't you better than this? Maybe you've felt that question and not been able to, to articulate it or verbalize it. or Maybe you have verbalized it before and felt guilty for saying something like that, that, that feels so raw and, and unchurchy. But regardless, when it comes to that question of, of God, it, it seems like you're better than this. You're not alone in asking it. Because when we turn to this little book, Habakkuk, located toward the very end of the Old Testament, we find one of God's prophets asking the same question. Because the essence of so much of what we heard read this morning when Ross read this passage of Habakkuk is, God, aren't you better than this? Why aren't you doing anything about this? Um, now, Habakkuk is definitely one of those books that you need the, the table of contents to find. So um, as my friend Nathan says, don't, don't be a hero. Uh, you can just turn to the table of contents uh, to find it. It's a tiny book. It's just three chapters located toward the end of the book. And uh, like John mentioned, it's part of this collection Uh, of Old Testament books, sometimes referred to as the minor prophets. And they're called the minor prophets not because they're less significant somehow, but they're just shorter. So it's this collection of short books. They're all between, you know, two and ten chapters. They're shorter books. And uh, they are about um, what God is doing. And what we hear the language of prophecy or prophets, oftentimes we think about God kind of telling the future through a person. And, and the biblical prophets, they, they do do some of that. They, they tell what is going to happen, what God is going to do. But, but really more central to the prophetic role than, than telling the future was the work of calling God's people back to obedience and love for him when they began to disobey and chase after other loves. But Habakkuk is, is a little bit unique in this regard. Because prophets, usually their work was to to rebuke God's people, to, to call them back for not keeping the covenant that God had made with them. But Habakkuk kind of reverses this. Because Habakkuk begins to question God for seeming like, God, you're not keeping up your end of the covenant. Like Job, this good man who lost everything... Habakkuk looks at evil and suffering in the world, and and he cries out, God, how long? How long are you going to let this continue? But but one of the differences between Job and Habakkuk is is that Job asked the question, why do the righteous suffer, God? Why do you let good people, why do you let the righteous suffer? And, And Habakkuk asks a slightly different question. Habakkuk asks, why do you let evil people continue to go unpunished? So Job is asking, God, why do you let the righteous suffer? But Habakkuk says, God, why are you letting the wicked continue to get away with it? And as we're going to look at this book over the next three weeks, we will see not only Habakkuk's character as a sincere follower of Yahweh, the one true God, but we also see his willingness to question and ultimately to trust in the God who made the world, even when it seems like the world makes no sense at all. And so this morning, as we look at the first part of this short book, we're going to see three things. We're going to see, first, that sometimes questioning is the right response. Sometimes questioning is the right response. And second, we're going to see that that sometimes there really aren't any satisfying answers. And then finally, we're going to see that sometimes the best you can do is to wait so, first, sometimes questioning is the right response. And second, that sometimes there aren't any satisfying answers. And then finally, that at the end of the day, sometimes the best you can do is to wait. Now, what we see in the first four verses of Habakkuk chapter 1 is that really sometimes questioning is the right response. Habakkuk looks around and he cries out, God, how long? God, how long are you going to keep looking at what is happening and not do anything about it? Now, now to really feel the force of that complaint, of that outcry, of this question that Habakkuk asked, we we need to understand something of the context. What's happening in Habakkuk's world that's that's prompting him to ask this question? Well, Habakkuk was an Israelite, and, and he writes at a time of terrible political and social upheaval, massive conflict, not all that unfamiliar to what we face in many parts of the world today. Like the prophet Jeremiah, one of the major prophets, one of the longer prophets, Habakkuk writes about the destruction of God's people by the Babylonians. And we see them referred to in verse 6 in the ESV as, as the Chaldeans, but it's the same group of people. It's this nation that's going to rise up out of Syria, conquer Syria, and then all of sort of the Middle East at that time. In the time frame, it's about 600 B.C., it's toward the end of the Old Testament, and, and Jesus' coming is still a long way off. And at this point in Israel's history, God's people have completely abandoned him. They've utterly rejected him. Josiah, who was the last good king of Israel, he was killed in a battle against the Egyptians in 609. And Josiah's son, Jehoiakim, takes the throne. But Jehoiakim, he's really just a puppet of the, of the pharaoh, Niko. In Jehoiachin, he's corrupt, he's self-serving, he's idolatrous, and his rule ushered in the end for God's people in the southern region of Israel known as Judah. This king, this Jehoiakim, he murdered the innocent, he enslaved the poor, he oppressed God's prophets and he allowed the priests to abuse their power. So Israel had turned from serving Yahweh, the, the one true God, to abandon him even to the point of child sacrifice at this point in their history. So now it begins to become clear why Habakkuk brings his complaint, his, his angry question, God, God how long Are you going to let this keep going on, God? God, aren't you you better than this? This is how one scholar kind of sums up the context that Habakkuk faces. Habakkuk describes a society full of crime, violence, corruption, mock legal battles, and the defeat of the righteous. It is a ruined society, and the prophet wants to know why Yahweh tolerates the flourishing of such wickedness. God, God, why are you letting the wicked go unpunished? Why aren't you intervening? Why aren't you doing something to stop this? You see, sometimes questioning is the right response. I think sometimes we, we are actually sort of externally, we're, we're, we're too pious. At least on the surface, we, we refuse to question. God, God, what are you doing? This doesn't seem like it makes sense with who you revealed yourself to be. Why aren't you doing something about this? But the reality is is that that God knows our hearts. Even when we don't articulate those questions, he he knows those questions are there. He knows our doubts. He knows our pain. He knows our cries. And and what we find in the Bible, actually, is that God's people openly express those questions, those doubts, those those outcries on a regular basis. We we read Psalm 13 together, where the psalmist is crying out, God, how long are you going to let this keep going on? And and honestly, at one level, isn't it a little bit shocking to find passages like this in the Bible? I mean, here in Habakkuk and and Psalms, there's lots and lots of these texts where people cry out and say, God, this doesn't make sense. This doesn't match up with who you've said you are. And, And honestly, I don't know of anything like this in the Quran or in other holy texts where you have God's people actually crying out against God, saying, God, do something about this. Aren't you, aren't you better than this? Because think about it. Uh, whatever you happen to believe about the Bible, you have to give it this, that, that it's honest. It's honest. Every religion, every every worldview has to explain the question of suffering. Every, everyone has to deal with this, whether you're a Christian or or a Muslim, or a Buddhist, or a secularist, everyone has to answer the question, well, why, why do we have suffering in the world? And, and according to the Bible, God created a perfect world, a world without pain or sin, but when we as human beings declared war on our creator, everything shattered. And sort of the shrapnel of that conflict, of our rebellion, is pervasive. It touches everything in life. And now we live in a world that that isn't fair, in a world where, where justice is perverted on a regular basis. Author Philip Yancey, he writes, I have often wondered why the Bible gives no systematic explanation for the problem of suffering. Most biblical authors, it seems, did not sit around scratching their heads over the question, why do bad things happen to good people? Yancey says, they viewed the world rather as enemy territory, a spoiled planet ruined by the father of lies, the wizard of woe. What else will we expect from Satan's lair? You see, our world, like the world of Harry Potter, is under the control of Lord Voldemort. We, like those in Middle Earth, are under the rule of Sauron. We, like those in Narnia, are under the curse of the White Witch. We live in a world not as it ought to be, but one under a spell of an evil ruler. Now, now just knowing this about our world is, is hardly satisfying in most cases. It doesn't answer all the questions that we have. But what is so unique about the Bible is that it actually gives us language to voice our complaints. It gives us language to express the, the discontinuity that we experience between the worlds that ought to be and the world as it is. It actually gives us language to talk about that. It gives us language to talk to God about that. There, there's no other holy book that I, that I know or worldview that allows for such honesty that actually provides language for this. In fact, people accuse God of lots of things but I challenge you to to look through the Bible and find anything there that that you can't find, or rather, let me say that. I I challenge you to find anything that someone accuses God of that you don't also see someone in the Bible accusing him of. And God actually includes this in the Bible. People say, God, you're too slow. God, you haven't acted. Why did you let my brother die? If he were here, he, he wouldn't have. You look through the pages of Scripture, there's a whole panoply of, of, of accusations that come to God. And He hears them, He receives them. So the question for us is, is are we questioning? Are you questioning? You see, this, this whole passage, really the whole book of Habakkuk, it, it, it rejects fatalism and determinism, it, it rejects a deism of a God who's distant, who's not engaged. You see, sometimes we can slip into the mentality of, well, whatever will happen will happen. That it's, it's just all sort of, there's nothing we can do. It's all sort of done. And prayer doesn't really make a difference. But, but this is not the picture of God and the world that he created that we get in the Bible. We get a picture of a God who is free, who is faithful, but who is also personal and relational, a God who reveals himself to his creatures, a God who interacts with them, and a God who longs for his creatures to interact back with him. You see, God, he can handle your questions. He can even handle your anger, your frustration. So, so what is it this morning that you, that you need to bring to him When's the last time that you cried out to him and God said, look at our city, God. Or look at my family. This doesn't seem right. Do you see this? How long, O oh Lord? You see, God would rather you cry out to him. He would rather you yell at him. He would rather you be angry and frustrated at him than to ignore him. See, the the essence of hatred is is to ignore someone, to pretend as though they don't exist at all. Engage with God, even if you're upset, even if you're angry. He'd rather that interaction than for you to ignore him. You see, because at the end of the day, lament isn't whining about God. Lament is an honest pursuit of God in the midst of agony, agony, deciding to direct our prayers and our cries to him. Because at the end of the day, if God really is God, if he really does know all things, then he knows those things are in our heart anyway, so bring them to him. You see, faith isn't always smiling. Faith is always running to God. You see, if you're looking for answers, the best place to bring your questions about God is to God himself. It's an expression of faith and trust to come to him, even when you don't understand, even when all you can say is, God, how long? How long? Now, what we see next is amazing. You see, Habakkuk has cried out to God. He's, he's questioning God, aren't you better than this? God, why aren't you doing anything about this? And then God responds. He, he actually, he answers, <laughs> And I wonder if Habakkuk was expecting this, because I think you see lots of examples in Scripture where where people are crying out and God is hearing them, but not often do you then have recorded God speaking back, actually responding. So I wonder if Habakkuk was surprised in this moment. Like we said earlier, there, there are lots of examples of people calling out to God, but not often do we get an example of God then replying right back to the question. So, how does God respond? What does he say? Well, look at verses 5 and 6. God says, Look among the nations and see, wonder, and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. And then God continues in verses 7 through 11 to describe just how brutal this nation is. And one thing that's clear from the description is that however bad God's people might be, these Chaldeans, they're worse. So so what's going on here? This is not what Habakkuk was expecting. God answers Habakkuk's cry of, God, why aren't you doing anything with, oh, Habakkuk, I am doing something. But I'm doing something that you would have never expected. God says, I am going to judge the wicked in Israel, but actually I'm going to let Babylon do the heavy listing on that work. There are people so fierce. I mean, if you read back, the Assyrians, the Babylonians were such a brutal people. They were known to rape and pillage, skinning their victims alive. They brutalized pregnant women, murdering their children, and they enjoyed it. God says, Habakkuk, that's my solution to your problem. That's how I'm going to deal with the wicked In Israel. And it's exactly what happens. I mean, eight years later, Jerusalem is overrun by the Babylonians. And Habakkuk would watch his nation, God's people, brutally destroyed. You can read about it in the book of Lamentations, the prophet Jeremiah writing as he watches the city of Jerusalem destroyed by the Babylonians. So, can you imagine being Habakkuk and hearing those words? (laughs) This is not what he was expecting. I mean, the shock and the horror of we just had this battle with the Egyptians, and now you're saying, God, we're going to be overrun by the Chaldeans? I mean, just try to imagine that if if God told us that about Kansas City, about our neighborhoods, our community. Or even more individually, this would be like complaining to God about a backache and then finding out that the answer is that you're dying of cancer. This is not what Habakkuk was expecting. It's not what he wanted as an answer. Sometimes there are no satisfying answers. You see, the inescapable reality of the book of Habakkuk confronts us with is that God actually does allow terrible achi- things to achieve purposes that we will never understand. And then the further thing is that that if we are lucky enough, like Habakkuk, to get an answer, which is really the exception, not the rule, right, that there's a good chance that we aren't going to like the answer. Habakkuk, he's stunned. He can't believe it. I mean, if his first complaint was, God, why aren't you doing anything, his second complaint in verses 12 through 17 is, is, God, why are you doing that? (laughs) First he says, God, why aren't you doing anything? And then, then what in the world, why are you doing that? But think about it so often in our own lives, when we're confronted with the brokenness of our world, with the reality of suffering and on, a, on a macro scale of, of systemic injustice and suffering, or at a micro scale in our own lives. What answer would, would really actually satisfy us? I mean, think about suffering and injustice on, on the large scale. I mean, human trafficking, enslavement of children, orphans, AIDS crisis. The death of a spouse or child, chronic depression, infertility, all of these things crushing down upon us. And, and we want answers, right? I mean, we want, God, why, why is the world this way? Why are you allowing this to happen to them or to me? I mean, like Habakkuk, we say, God, how long are you going to let this continue? But what could God say that would really make it okay I mean, you ever, we often ask that question, but he you ever really thought through what would be the answer from God that, that would really help in that moment? Because the question why really never has a good answer for us. I mean, and imagine if you can, losing a child and crying out, why? And God actually telling you why. I mean, would that make it okay? I mean, would you say, well, I I allowed this to happen so 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 so-and-so would come to faith. Or, well, this was the only way that you would really come to trust me. Or, I allowed this to happen so that, that I would receive the glory at the funeral. I mean, think about it. Even if any or all of those things were true, do they really make you okay with the fact You'll never celebrate another birthday with your child. You see, answers, they might help our minds, but they can't heal our broken hearts. And friends, I'm convinced that sometimes there are just no satisfying answers. Not, not this side of heaven, not in our limited view, at least. And this is also really important to keep in mind because we can't assume we know why for someone else who is hurting. This is often the mistake we make when we, when we run into someone or someone in our lives is experiencing this kind of suffering. And we want to we try to explain it for them or, or give them some kind of comfort by saying, well, maybe this is what God is doing. But here's the thing. Don't, don't tell them it's going to be okay when it isn't. Don't, don't say everything happens for a reason Because even if that's true, and we we as Christians, we believe that it is true, but in the moment, it just feels like a slap in the face. Because if even God's answers don't satisfy, I mean, Habakkuk gets a direct word from God, he isn't satisfied, it's not likely that ours are going to satisfy either. Because what Habakkuk needs more than answers, what he needs more than an explanation is the presence of God to know that God is still with him. Do do you see how Habakkuk addresses God in verse 12? He says, Yahweh, the personal name of God. When you see in your Bible the word Lord in all caps, it's it's translating the the word Yahweh, God's personal name. He says, Lord, Yahweh, a rock, a sure foundation. He calls God my rock, my holy one. You, You see, rather than distancing himself from God, Habakkuk presses closer in, Faith is sticking with God even when you don't like the answers, even if answers never come. Nicholas Wolterstorff, a fine Christian philosopher and theologian, uh, wrote a small book after his son was, was killed in a mountain climbing accident called Lament for a Son. It's less than 100 pages. I highly recommend it. It's so powerful. Have a box of Kleenex nearby if you do choose to read it. But he writes in Lament for a Son... He says, what we need more than answers is an affirmation of God's presence. What we need more than answers is an affirmation of God's presence. This has been brought home to me in, in new ways as, as a parent. Um, one of the toughest things as a parent of a, of a young 11-month-old baby is to take these little ones to get their shots, right? Right? And it happens a lot in the first year of their life. And this is the moment you're in the doctor's office, and one moment she's happy, and she's cooling, and she's laying on the examination table. Uh, And then, while I hold her there, uh, someone sticks a needle in her, uh, maybe two, even three times. And there's always the moment of shock on her face, followed by that, and your parent, you know this, the open mouth, silent scream, Right? (laughs) And then as though the pain finally catches up with the speed of sound, that heartbroken bro- cry of pain. Now in that moment, does the explanation of why she's getting the shot, even if she could understand it, which she can't, does that help the pain? No. I mean, the explanation, even if she could grasp it, is, is little comfort in the moment of shed tears. In that moment, all that matters is that mom is in the room holding you tightly, telling you how much she loves you, crying with you. Which is why one of the best things you can do when you're hurting or when you're with other people who are hurting is simply to cry with them. To together believe that God is better than this even as you wrestle with him. So Habakkuk ends his complaint with the question in chapter 1, verse 17. He says, is, is Babylon then going to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? That's where he ends his second point. God, why are you really doing that? Why are you doing that? Is he going to really keep doing this forever? And the question is there. There's kind of a beat. There's kind of a pause, a moment of tension in the text. And what will Habakkuk do now? The question is sitting out there. Will he turn away from God? Will, will he give up on God? Will he just continue to question? What happens next? Look at chapter 2, verse 1. This is the final verse that we're going to look at this morning. Habakkuk says after that question, he says, I will take my stand on my watch post and I will station myself on the tower and look out and see what God will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. So Habakkuk says, I'm going to climb up on the wall and I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait and see what God does. Which is interesting because waiting is actually a means of still being engaged, isn't it? Waiting means that he still has hope means he still trusts. Because if you think about it, right, if I'm, just in a small way, if I'm waiting for a friend at a restaurant and and he's running late, as long as I'm still at the restaurant waiting, it means I still believe there's a chance that he's going to come. I mean, if if I gave up, I wouldn't be waiting anymore. I I would leave, right? But as long as there's a possibility, as long as there's a hope that that he's still going to make it, I wait. Waiting is an expression of hope. Waiting, it's an expression of, of trust. Ultimately, it's an expression of faith. So then the question for us is, who are we waiting for? Who are you waiting for? Are you, are you waiting? Or maybe, maybe you've gotten to a point of giving up. See, so God can handle our questions, our anger, our confusion, but the key is to stay engaged with him in the midst of it all, to continuously wait in faith for the coming of one who will make all things new. Now, now waiting isn't passive. It sometimes can feel like that, but, but waiting is, is actively trusting Waiting is learning to obey. I I love how Oswald Chambers, the great devotional writer, um, the little book that's famous is my utmost for his highest. I love how he puts this. I I first read this passage uh, from Oswald Chambers when I was a high school student during a difficult season. It's always stuck with me. Oswald Chambers writes, he says, Wait in the Lord and he will work. But don't wait sulkingly, spiritually, and feeling sorry for yourself just because you can't see one inch in front of you. And this is the part that has always stuck with me. He says, waiting is not sitting with folded hands doing nothing, but it is learning to do what we are told. Waiting is not sitting with folded hands doing nothing. It's learning to do what we are told. Waiting is learning to trust and obey even when we can't see one inch in front of us. We were saying this morning during our prayer time before the service that the last time I preached was on John chapter 11 with the death of Lazarus. This is another heavy message. I I promise I don't always give just heavy messages. But the reality is it's so important for us as a people to press into suffering because there's a point in time when every one of us is going to face hardship And as a people, as your pastor, we have to have categories to deal with that together, to help one another through it, to to have resources for when we ourselves face it. And so these messages, these texts, they aren't always fun, but the Bible actually brings these to us as resources, as a a well of hope, as a foundation for us, so that we're prepared in these moments when suffering comes. Because at the end of the day, Christianity doesn't offer a perfect, tidy, satisfying explanation for the problem of pain and injustice it just it just doesn't As my theology professor graham cole would always tell us in seminaries: says, the bible actually it says very little about the arrival of evil we don't know where does the serpent come from where does satan come from the bible just doesn't give us a lot of explanation for that but what the bible is clear about is the survival of evil and namely that it won't that evil doesn't survive That it will be destroyed And in the meantime, the Bible gives us words to voice our complaints. But at the end of the day, we need more than just words, don't we? And Habakkuk would wait a long time. (laughs) Really, in one way, he would wait about 600 years for the coming of Christ, and he wouldn't see it with his own eyes. And while we don't have all the answers, we do have something that, that Habakkuk hoped for. We have something that that others don't. We have a God who isn't immune to his own ways. You see, we may not like that God allows injustice to accomplish purposes that we don't understand, but he also allowed that injustice to come upon himself. For he himself was unjustly crucified by an oppressive and bloodthirsty people, And while we certainly don't like that feeling of absence and we don't understand what God is doing in the silence that we often feel, but Jesus, God himself, felt the same silence and abandonment on the cross. when He cried out, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? We have a God who knows what it is to face his own death, to be mistreated and abused, to lose a child, to lose a friend. In the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Lutheran pastor during World War II who was executed in a concentration camp. He said, only a suffering God can help. And in Jesus, we have a suffering God. Jesus experienced the ultimate injustice so that no injustice will ever have the last word. He suffered and died so that your suffering, so that my death will not be the end of our stories. And he promises that that maybe not now, maybe not in this life, but he promises that he will make it right in the end. And in the book of Acts, the first book after the Gospels, the Apostle Paul is preaching a sermon. He actually quotes some words from Habakkuk. Those words from verse 5. Look, be astounded, for I am doing a work in your day that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you but the context is different there. He's talking about what Jesus has done and how shocking it is. And yes, we will continue to cry out with Habakkuk, God, aren't you better than this? How long? But because of Jesus, we have hope. We know that he is. And that he will finally destroy evil. Because as Philip Yancey puts it, because of Jesus, we have the assurance that whatever disturbs us, disturbs God more. Whatever we, grief that we feel, God feels it more. Whatever we long for, God longs for it more. That's the hope that we have because of the cross. The cross is the lasting reminder that God is always with us, that he will never leave us or forsake us, even to the point of death. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're so thankful that you hear our cries as your people.